Welcome to our latest edition of Hidden Tracks, Stories from BART. I'm Chris Filippi, and this is no doubt going to be one of my favorite versions of this podcast because today I get to talk with Mike Healy. Mike started working for BART back in the early 70s and spent decades as the public face of the agency as the chief spokesman. I actually got to talk with Mike early on in my reporting days, so this is a good flashback for me too. Now Mike has written a book entitled BART, The Dramatic History of the Bay Area Rapid Transit system and he's here now to talk about it mike thank you so much for your time with this oh it's my pleasure chris yeah you really are the perfect person to tell this story you started with bart back in 1971 it, it was quite a ride for you well actually my first day on the job was november 15th 1971 and i'll never forget it because i got here i was in the office early and within a few minutes i got my first media call from the san diego union telling me there was uh, a strike by the Roar Company, which was supplying the BART cars. And how is that going to affect uh, the opening date? And I'd, they'd like to comment. And, of course, I said, oh, I'll get back to you. <laughs> Interesting from the very beginning. Of course, BART started service back in 1972. But you really can trace the history much farther back than that. For you, where do you feel like the idea of BART got its origination? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. Um, the genesis of BART really began with an Army-Navy report back in 1947. And, but it really goes back even further than that. Actually, back to the 1860s when Emperor Norton was wandering around the streets of San Francisco, everybody thought he was crazy or just some eccentric. He used to dress up uh, like a general, uh, and he claimed to be the protector of Mexico uh, and, uh, in, and the United States. Anyway, he actually sent a memo to the San Francisco Chronicle, I believe it was the Chronicle at the time, or the Examiner, I think it was the Chronicle, uh, outlining his proposal for a tunnel under the bay between San Francisco and Oakland. And he also call, called for a bridge as well back in those days. And that's probably the first time anybody ever thought of the idea of going under the bay to create a transit corridor. You, you go back into the history. It, it seems like it's been a challenge, even from before the beginning, to bring BART into reality. As you look at those early days, especially as the state legislature started to get involved, creating a commission to really study this idea, you look at the regional dynamics involved with trying to get the BART system up and going. As you look at that time, what do you see as some of the greatest challenges that had to be overcome to, to make BART a reality? Well, I think, uh, first of all, public opinion. Uh, you know, this is the post-war years uh, in the Bay Area, and population uh, was growing exponentially uh, because a lot of the, the soldiers had come through, and they loved the area, and they came back, brought their families, and uh, transportation was going to be a very important factor in the growth of the Bay Area. But there was a lot of pushback, too. There were a lot of people who said, oh, no, we don't want, uh, you know, they had a key system at the time, uh, which was running, but it was really like a streetcar system. And not, and it was regional in nature, but it wasn't what I'd call a high-speed system. Uh, but it was good for its time. Uh, so anyway, a lot of people said, well, we don't want to pay, we don't want to pay for a new system. And, and that, that was one of the major things. Uh, that was, uh, you know, kind of a deterrent to trying to get BART off the ground. There was a guy back in the early days named Marv Lewis, Marvin Lewis, and I considered him an early pioneer of getting BART started. 
uh, he when he he was one of the first people to get a hold of the Army Navy report coming out of, in 1947, which called for building a tunnel or a or a tube under the bay to carry high-speed trains. And the reason for this uh, report that had been started actually before the war and then was put aside, and then they got back to it after the war, was because uh, the uh, military was concerned about the bridge and that if anything ever happened to it during a war, they would need some way to move troops back and forth between the East Bay and the West Bay. And that was really one of their reasons. And they said, well, it could connect up with the key system. But Marvin Lewis had another idea, and he thought this could be really the key to building a real regional rapid transit system, uh, very similar to what they have in other uh, in the East, like New York or the Long Island Railroad, uh, those kinds of things. Yeah, you know this book that you've written really isn't just about a transit system; it's about the people. Uh, you mentioned Marvin Lewis. Another very interesting name that comes up early on is Bill Stokes, the first employee of Bart. Now, tell me about him. He was a newspaper guy at first, right? When Bill Stokes came out of the Navy, he uh, was a he'd been trained as a journalist, and he went to work for the Oakland Tribune as a uh, feature writer uh, for Urban Affairs. And he got very interested in transportation. So he wrote a lot of articles about the possibility of building a regional rail transit system in the Bay Area. Uh, Adrian Falk, who was, uh, became, who was the second president of the BART board at the time, liked what Bill was writing. And he brought him on as the first information officer for BART. In fact, he was the very first employee of BART as an information officer. And then uh, and the general manager at the time was a guy named Pierce. Um, then uh, Bill uh, was promoted to assistant general manager, very small staff at that time, and they were all, uh, I think, ensconced in, in uh, the flood building in San Francisco. Um, Bill became assistant general manager, I believe it was in 62, somewhere in there, and then, uh, no, actually it was 60, yeah, 62 or 61, 62. Anyway, he was assistant general manager at that time and became general manager after the referendum uh, in 1962 that uh, provided the funding, the initial funding to build the system. One of the bold things about this plan, by the way, was that they were going to build a 75-mile system all at once. That was unheard of. Uh, usually systems like this were built in segments and then built on after, you know, in time uh, would grow. So Bill was really uh, the general manager who guided the system through the construction period for the next 11 years uh, up until uh, the system opened and on to, uh, to 1974. I'm speaking with Mike Healy, former chief spokesman for BART, and we're talking about his new book entitled BART, The Dramatic History of the Bay Area Rapid Transit System. And Mike, from my read of this book, it was very obvious you really put your work into this. I mean, this was an unbelievable effort that must have gone into it. Talk about that work, and, and how did you even come up with the idea that this was a story that needed to be told? Well, actually, the general manager at BART, Grace Kronikin, and I had lunch one day, and I was telling her some of the stories from the old days, and she said, you know, Bart, you know, Mike, you ought to write the story. You ought to write the history of Bart. I said, eh, I don't write science fiction. I kiddingly said. <laughs> but, you know, as I got to think about it, I thought, you know, there's really a, a great story to be told here. And I knew where some of the bodies were buried. 
Uh, and of course, during my research, I found a lot more. Uh, but uh, you know, as I got into it, it became a real labor of love, and it took me two and a half years of research and writing. Um, and when I was finished, I thought, you know, it's a great story. It really is a great story. Yeah, and you mentioned Bill Stokes earlier. You tracked him down for an interview. Is that right? You know, I was very fortunate. Bill uh, was uh, getting up there in years, and he, his wife had unfortunately passed away uh, a couple of years before I started the project. So I tracked him down up in, uh, up in Seattle, and uh, he was living with his daughter up there. And I was lucky enough to get about four interviews with him, four or five interviews with him, before he passed away uh, the following year. Um, and those interviews supplied a lot of the great anecdotes that I was able to incorporate into the story. Yeah, and you mentioned the challenge of building a rail system all at once, 75 miles of track. It's very rare that that happens. It seems like another issue that comes up is that of timing, that many have questioned whether the system should have built so been built sooner, whether it may have been better to wait till later. Perhaps that could generate more public support for such an ambitious project. Where do you come on down on that, on the sense of timing for BART? I would say that BART was actually perfectly timed. If it had been before, it would have been probably the same old kind of technology being used. If it were later, it probably would have been a lot more expensive. So I would say, and because BART was able to take advantage of aerospace technology at that time that, was, that had been developed uh, during the space program, uh, again, I'd say perfectly timed. Uh, it really was. And it's just one of those things that, and, and it's lucky, it's really lucky that the bond issue passed in 1962 to provide the initial funding. Had it not passed at that time, uh, they would have had to wait another two or four years, and it would have cost a lot more. Yeah, and as you well know, there was popular support in San Francisco. There was popular support in Alameda County. Contra Costa County was where there was a lot of concern about what that vote tally was going to be when it came back. And it seems like that's one of the things that come up is that you have these regional rivalries that play a role throughout the history of BART. So much fighting over local tax dollars and, and how they should be spent. It, it seems like that rivalry was perhaps at its most vitriolic when it comes to Contra Costa County versus the other two. Talk about that. I mean, is that something that's, that has come up in Bart's history? Well, Contra Costa was, there was more pushback in Contra Costa County. Ironically, Contra Costa probably uh, benefits the most from the Bart line out there. Um, what happened was uh, in, the re in the outlying areas, they were, the, the plan that was presented called the Composite Report uh, took BART out to Concord, but there were areas beyond that in uh, Pittsburgh and Antioch and Brentwood, and those areas were very concerned that they were going to pay taxes for BART and not get the service. Um, and their guy out there, a guy named Joe Silva, uh, was going to ultimately be the swing vote because they, we knew, or BART knew, it was before my time, but BART knew that there were two votes for BART and two votes against BART to put it on the ballot for the 1962 referendum. Um, anyway, Joe Silva uh, was a question mark. People did not know where he was going to come out on this. And a lot of his constituents back in, and he was a supervisor, by the way, on the Contra Costa County Board of Supervisors, a lot of his constituents in the outlying area where he lived or he represented were really leaning on him hard to vote against this, that they did not want to be paying taxes for this system. Uh, 
But ultimately, Joe came around, and on the day of the vote, when nobody knew what he was going to do, uh, there is a famous coffee shop story about this, which I won't get into right now because it's fairly long, but uh, ultimately he was the swing vote and voted to put it on the ballot. And his reasoning was, let's leave it up to the people to decide if they want the system or not. Um, ultimately, uh, during the vote, it failed in Contra Costa County, not by much, but it turned out that they averaged the votes between the three counties, luckily, and so um, it was a squeaker, but it won. Yeah, and the rest is history. Along with the track, there was so much infighting over the stations, and it seems like BART really made this effort to reach out to the communities to try to give them stations that they would be pleased with, but there was a lot of pushback. I I'm thinking specifically of uh, downtown Berkeley, for example. That story uh, jumped out at me. Well, clearly, Chris, you've, won you've read the book. <laughs> yes, uh, there, were, there were always issues about station location, particularly out in the Contra Costa area. And um, uh, the Berkeley situation was a little bit different. Bart's plan was to run an aerial line through the city of Berkeley. And there was a guy named Wally Johnson who was the mayor of Berkeley at the time. And he was very much against it. And his business was scaffolding. So he he wanted to uh, he wanted the people to, sh to see what an aerial line might look like. So he put up scaffolding to sort of represent what an aerial line would look like in parts of uh, Berkeley, and of course he he really rallied the people there to be up in arms over this whole idea, and he wanted Bart to go underground. So there was a lot of controversy about that for several years, until the Bart board agreed to do it, if. Berkeley would uh, hold their own referendum and and pay for the difference between what the composite report called for in terms of cost estimate and what it would cost to put the system underground. Frankly, I think it was a great move. I think Berkeley was absolutely right in doing that. And, you know, when you look back on it now, who, who would want an aerial line running across, you know, Berkeley? It's crazy. And there, were cons there, was, there was a lot of consideration for social aspects of that, that you would have a dividing line between North Berkeley and, uh, and West Berkeley or East Berkeley and West Berkeley. Yeah, and I would just think going back to that time, it was really important to get community buy-in. You really wanted to build that public support for this, this system that seems like such a part of our lives. We take it for granted, but it was very new back then. No, Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, one of the things that happened was that uh, some of the engineering estimates were way beyond what people thought it would cost to, to build this underground line. Uh, and as it turned out, it was a lot less. And, and the people of Berkeley, I think, paid an extra $12.5 something like that, to put it underground. I'm speaking with BART Chief Spokesman, former BART Chief Spokesman Mike Healy, talking about his new book entitled BART, The Dramatic History of the Bay Area Rapid Transit System, a very appropriate title because there have been many dramatic moments. Uh, there have been scandals in the history of BART, and you really take an honest look at these throughout your book. I mean, there have been cases where the FBI has been involved with BART. T tell us about that. Well, I named names. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yes, uh, I can recall a time when I was sitting in my office one day and I got a call from uh, the office of uh, Dick Demko, a guy named Dick Demko, who was here, and he was acting general manager because the general manager, Keith Bernard, was off on a leave at the time. So 
Uh, he asked me to come up and meet with him and also the head of labor relations, a guy named Larry Williams. And so we two of us go up there, we meet with Dick, and Dick said, I don't know what's going on, but the three of us have been uh, have been requested to go and meet with the FBI on Concord, at the Concord office. We go out there. We meet with a guy named Lou, uh, Drew Epi. I think that was his name. And uh, we have they write it. We go into the, we go into this building and we go up to the fourth floor, whatever it was, and it's a totally unmarked uh, you know door. But all we knew was the door number. I mean the number of the of the suite. We knock on the door. Guy opens up. Says yes. Can I help you? Said well, we've been asked to come here. And uh, so they let us in, gave us some coffee, and we're sitting there for several minutes wondering what is going on here. And then Drew Epi, I think it was, came in, sat down with us and said, well, I uh, just wanted to let you know that right now we're in the midst of raiding your offices in Oakland wow. and arresting uh, several people. And that's what was going on. And the reason for it was there was, there was uh, some scams going on with uh, these guys who could let, uh, there were middle managers who could let uh, uh, contracts up to $10,000. So they were taking money under the table from vendors who wanted contracts. And that's, uh, and so the FBI set up a sting operation and they set up their own little company, a maintenance company. They paid a bribe under the table to, to these guys. And then of course that, you know, the, they were then arrested. I actually read the transcript from the tape they'd put under this table to to get the, you know, to catch the discussion over the whole thing. Yeah, anyway, it happened. Yeah, <laughs> I, absolutely. You had been with BART since 1971, good and the bad. What stands out to you? What, what for you was the darkest day for BART during your time with the transit agency? No question. The 1979 was the darkest year. Uh, for two reasons. One, the Transpay Tube fire, which happened on January 17th, and we had to deal with that over several months. Uh, it was a very controversial issue. Uh, BART had to go through a lot of paces with the fire department to uh, bring a lot of things up to uh, what probably should have been happening in the first place. One of the things that was discovered was that the polyurethane uh, material used in the cars and in the seat cushions and the floors of the car um, were uh, toxic uh, when burning. And even though they were considered to be somewhat fire resistant, they, they really weren't that much. So BART went through a $40 million program to upgrade the system change out all of the material and did a lot of testing. We tested at McDonnell Douglas Labs down in Southern California, various materials that could be used. Finally came up with one um, that could be uh, substituted uh, for the polyurethane and, 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 and offer the same strength and the same, and the same properties that were needed. Um, but that was, a, that was a really tough time. I was, uh, you know, I was really on the front line on that the whole time. Following that was a major labor dispute that lasted several months and shut down BART, shut BART down for almost three months. And we actually provided some service with management, a very limited service during that period. But there were all kinds of things going on. Uh, there was some sabotage that took place out in Concord Yard. And then there was a situation where the, some of the union people took over the Concord uh, shop 
and they uh, they were getting food from a helicopter drops. Wow. Um, and I uh, I remember there was one time when I was invited to be on a radio show for, with Art Finley of K, KGO Radio, and I was only going to be on for a half hour to talk about just some various general issues. But then we got into the labor issue, ended up being on that show for three hours. <laughs> And while I was on the show, we get a call from Paul Vericelli, who was the head of SEIU 390 at the time. And he, he was the executive secretary of the union. And he called up. He said, hey, Mike, you know, we're in the shop. you got to get us out of here. I said, well, all you have to do is unchain the door from the inside. And, of course, he says, well, you know, we can't do that. And <clears throat> anyway, took a court order to finally get him out of there. <laughs> wow. It's incredible to think about, really. I mean, when we have a, a labor dispute now or any sort of a work stoppage, it'll go for a few days, and it's absolute Armageddon on the roadways. To think that there were labor stoppages in the past that lasted for three months, it, it's almost unthinkable to think of what that would mean for the Bay Area now. Well, we turned the Bay Area into a parking lot, basically. Um, you know, it's unthinkable. I think, you know, there's got to be a way to work closely with the unions uh, to try and avoid these kinds of things. And I know BART has always really come to the table and tried to, you know, negotiate and at the same time, of course, you know, uh, uh, trying to adhere to a fiduciary responsibility of the taxpayers. Um, and it's a delicate balance, and it has been since the very beginning. What a lot of people don't know about the labor situation at BART was that in the early days, that is going back to 1972, the bargaining units were set out by the state uh, through a, a labor lawyer named Sam Cagle. And Sam uh, basically set the bargaining units. Um, and then, then there was organizing that went on, and SEIU organized the employees. And in a way, BART is very lucky very lucky to have SEIU as their primary union representing a lot of the maintenance and various crafts people. It's, you, otherwise, you would have had 18 unions to deal with instead of one union. So uh, a lot of people don't realize that. One of the things that happened was 13C. Now, most people won't know what 13C is, but it required that when a new agency like BART came on the, on the scene, they would have impact and that, that they would probably have impact on the other agencies. So uh, BART was required to hire people who applied from other agencies like San Francisco Muni, Greyhound, Peerless Stage, AC Trans. And, <clears throat> and if these people had longevity with their own unions, they probably came over with a, a salary of, let's say, 20000 a year Whereas BART uh, train operators and station agents uh, were paying, were making uh, twelve thousand a year, twelve five. So that set up a situation where the unions, were, of course, were calling for parity, equal pay for equal work. It took about three years to get there, but uh, there was a strike in '73 to basically start the ball rolling on that idea, and that's really where it all began. You know, labor stoppages, the Transbay tube fire, some of the darker times. But one of the highlights, I would think, must have been how the system survived the Loma Prieta earthquake. 
1989 and how quickly service was restored and, and just such a critical moment for the Bay Area. Please share your reflections of that time. I would say that BART was really heroic in that respect. We were, for a month, the only game in town in terms of direct service between San Francisco and Oakland and until the bridge was repaired. And as a result of that, BART's ridership, suddenly a lot of new people discovered BART. And our ridership went up considerably and stayed there because the experience was good. People had a good experience on BART. BART was actually back in operation in, I think, 24 hours, something like that. Now, we have to go through a process where we go out and inspect the tracks, and we uh, make sure everything is uh, okay and you know, no, no, no significant damage anywhere, and that turned out be, to be true. Um, and, and BART really was a survivor. And, and as a result of that, BART also got a... Um, a great editorial in the San Francisco or in the Los Angeles Times saying this was Bart's finest hour. And then uh, I had actually contacted uh, a congressman that uh, I knew uh, named Don Edwards, uh, late Don Edwards, and asked him if he could uh, put us into the congressional record or put that into the congressional record. And he did. Wow. Yeah. So that was great. Well, what other highlights stand out to you in your time? Oh, there are so many. <laughs> Well, there's some fun things. Uh, in the late 80s, I hired uh, comedian Henny Youngman. Yes, I, rem <laughs> I remember those ads. I saw them. Take your Bart, please. Uh, I, Henny worked for me for two years. And uh, we did, so we did two major campaigns, one in 88, one in, 80, one in 87, one in 88, I think. And we were trying to boost ridership and, and primarily aiming at midday ridership. We wanted to build up, you know, the the non-commute ridership, and uh, and those ads helped immensely. They, you know, they were very popular. I was I was amazed at how great they were, because I remember when I when I proposed this uh, this uh, program or the you know this uh, market it was part of a marketing overall marketing effort. Proposed uh, Henny to do these ads in a staff meeting one day up in the fifth floor. Uh, and we were all, you know, the executives were all gathering, and I was head of media and public affairs at the time. And people looked at me and said, what are you, crazy? I mean, what demographic are we going after? But I said, you know, Henny's universal, and I think it'll work, and it did. And it, it was really, it turned out to be a great campaign. Um, and Henny turned out, you know, he was very funny. When we first met, we talked it over, and he said, well, can I use, say, Take Bart and my wife, please. I said, you know, I think just take your Bart, please, is enough, and people will get the message. Wow, yeah, that was very memorable. I remember those ads. I'm speaking with former Bart chief spokesman Mike Healy about his new book entitled Bart, The Dramatic History of the Bay Area Rapid Transit System. You know, Mike, technology and Bart go hand in hand. Bart has always aspired to be on the cutting edge, and that's certainly true with the design of the cars. An aerospace company, I don't think a lot of people know that, an aerospace company actually designed the cars. Yes, Roar Industry was the uh, the low bidder, um, and they also the design of the car was actually done by a company called Sunberg Ferrar out of I think Michigan. I believe they're out, I think they're out of Michigan, as I recall. Anyway, they were a industrial design firm that specialized in these kinds of things, and they came up with the basic design of the new car with the slope nose, and the whole idea of the slope nose was to give it a space age look. Uh, because that was all part of the marketing of BART, the selling of BART, 
And that was very important because you were competing with the automobile in the Bay Area. And in those days, the automobile was king. And people, you know, love their automobiles and try to get them out of that, you know, out of those automobiles into rapid transit was going to be a challenge. And that was really part of that challenge was to make BART look like it was really this new space age kind of system. Yeah, and it, it has that high-tech aspect to it throughout. I mean, just look at the way the trains are run through the automatic train control system. I, I've been to that center. I mean, it looks like something from NASA, but it's running our trains here in the Bay Area. Well, that's right. As a matter of fact, George Lucas loved it and used it in one of his very first films, THX 1138. And, and other parts of the system as well, the transbay tube, which was not yet open, but it had these rings before they put the track in, the concrete slab and the track in, and it looked like like a ladder, so you could climb it. So he had um, his protagonist, uh, Robert Duvall, uh, climb along. Uh, he was he was actually he was actually uh, horizontal, and then they turned the camera up so it would look like he was climbing up. Uh, you know, on this on this uh, tunnel, and it, it worked very well. But it was that space age look that George Lucas loved about Bart. Yeah, so much trial and error throughout the entire process. Some very low tech challenges very early on. I read that gophers were a problem at one point. Yeah, they ate the cables <laughs> along the Hayward. I think it was along the Hayward uh, area down there. Yeah, they ate the cables, and so they had put in concrete conduit and replaced the cables. Yeah, that was then. Uh, that of course hit the press. Yeah, absolutely. And so many interesting ideas of how to market Bart. You mentioned Henny Youngman. Uh, at one point, companies could actually charter a Bart car. Tell me about that idea and when, when that came about. That came about in the early '80s, and um, you could uh, actually ch you could actually uh, charter a train for a party. Now, one of the caveats of that was, well, you can't have alcohol. You know, and of course, of these, a lot of these parties, they wanted alcohol. However, it didn't really stop the alcohol from flowing. <laughs> I remember a very famous punch bowl in which one of our directors uh, tried it out, and uh, he uh, was feeling no pain by the time he got off that train, I think. Wow, I <laughs> now, did I read that the producers of The Simpsons reached out to you at one point? Yeah, that's an interesting story. That was in the very early 90s, and I got a, con I got a call or a, uh, I was contacted by the producers of this new show called The Simpsons. It hadn't aired yet. And so they sent me a book, which was really, a, it was really a wonderful book that had illustrations of all the characters, what their personalities were, and uh they said we'd like to. We would like to uh, tie in with Bart because of the name Bart and Bart Simpson, you know. So I read through this book and I said, "Well, you know, the problem is that Bart Simpson's character is that he's really a low achiever <laughs> <laughs> or a non-achiever and kind of irascible." And so I said, no, I don't think we really want to tie in with this. And so I didn't. And, of course, the rest is history. The show is still running today, <laughs> you know, all these years later. It's amazing, amazing. It really is. I, I, and, by the way, Matt Gronick, who created the character, actually uh, 
sent uh, me a poster uh, with a an inscription made out to my son, which was very nice of him. He did it through Channel Two. I mean, oh. through through Fox. Sure. Yeah. Very nice touch. We, we touched on the high points and the low points earlier. For you, looking back on your time, what are you most proud of when it comes to BART? Well, I'm really proud of the fact that BART turned out to be a really great system and so important to the Bay Area. It's probably one of the reasons I stayed with BART all those years. Uh, it was never my intention to you know, get into the transit business. Um, but uh, I really feel that, uh, you know, with all of the hullabaloo over whether BART was going to be a boondoggle or was going to be beneficial to the Bay Area, and it turns out that BART, I think, I think the Bay Area today couldn't live without BART. I think that's one of, one of the prides that I take in my association with BART over the years. Of course, past is prologue. Uh, people involved with BART, people in the broader community are going to be reading your book and learning all these great history lessons about this transit agency. Going forward, what can we learn from BART's history as, as we move forward and, and try to take this transportation system forward? Well, I use a quote in my preface at the, at the end of the preface. That's a quote from Mark Twain, and I believe, as I recall the quote, it is, the way to do something or accomplish something is to get started. Uh, I think BART is still in a growth mode, and uh, you know it's going down to San Jose now. Uh, I think possibly it could go out to Livermore at some point, uh, and also the... Uh, the uh, I-80 corridor coming out of Richmond or out of El Cerrito going up to toward uh, Sacramento. Um, those are all possible growth areas and some of the most congested corridors in the Bay Area, in fact, in the country. So uh, that's, you know, that's certainly one possibility. Of course, we have the new cars coming in, and BART's going to have a totally new look uh, when those cars start running around on the tracks. Yeah, it's a very exciting time. Mike, such a pleasure to read your book and even more so to talk to you today about it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Chris, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. That's Mike Healy, former longtime spokesman for BART, and I'm Chris Filippi. You can get your copy of Mike's newly released book, BART, The Dramatic History of the Bay Area Rapid Transit System, at Amazon. Thanks again for listening to Hidden Track Stories from BART. Our podcast series is now available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and our website, BART.gov.